in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning that because of Christ and his finished work on the cross and his sacrifice on our behalf in atoning for our sins and his serving of us as a our faithful high priest and as our advocate. Father, we can come boldly before your throne of grace as the scripture says in our time of need. So Father, I come to you right now in the name of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, your word tells us how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in him, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Lord, you open the eyes of the blind. You raise up those who are bowed down. Lord, you love the righteous. You protect the strangers. You support the fatherless and the widow. But Lord, you thwart the ways of the wicked. And Lord, we thank you for these words of this psalm. Lord, we have not put our trust in human leaders, in mere mortal beings. Because, Lord, in them there is no salvation. But, Lord, we have put our trust in you, the Lord our God, the creator of heaven and earth. You are forever faithful. One day, Lord, you will bring perfect justice throughout the earth. But Lord, in the meantime, you provide for all the needs of your people. We thank you that you have filled the hungry, that you liberated captives, that you give sight to the blind, that you raise up those who are bowed down and cast down in spirit. Lord, you have comforted those who have been afflicted. Lord, indeed, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God. Lord, we thank you this morning that you love perfectly and everlastingly those who are covered with the righteousness that comes from Christ. We worship you, Lord, as the maker and sustainer of all things. We give thanks to you, O God. We glorify you for your wondrous deeds. Lord, as blessed as we are to be under the cover of your grace, Lord. However, we must confess, as we did earlier, that we have sinned, that we have broken your law, which is written in our hearts as well as in the scriptures. Lord, we have disregarded the voice of conscience and spurned the clear direction of your spirit. Lord, worship, we have at times refused the clear commands of your holy word. Yet, Lord, despite this, you daily show us grace and long-suffering. And in Christ we are forgiven. Lord, I ask you to purge our lives of sin. Cleanse our souls from guilt. Deliver us from earthly affections. Guide our feet away from the path of evil. Lord, may we not walk after the Spirit and fulfill the desires of the flesh. Lord, make us to walk in the way of righteousness for the sake of your holy name. May we pursue the beauty of your holiness and the security of the hope that you have set before us. May we never, Lord, lose our firm assurance in a salvation that is forever. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't leave us helpless and hopeless 
But Lord, you have provided us, you have equipped us with suitable spiritual armor to protect us against the schemes of the evil one. And Lord, we thank you also for such a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us always. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which guides and teaches us. Lord, graciously empower us to bind it upon our hearts and thus set our minds on you. We long to understand your truths and to observe how you operate so we can see blessing in every trial and joy in every sorrow. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude and praise this morning. May we see your design in everything. Cause us, Lord, to proclaim your gospel to all who will hear. And may we gain a better understanding because both our doctrine and practice manifest the glory of Christ in his saving work. Lord, I ask you to look in here on this congregation this morning. On those who may be afflicted with sickness. Those who may be afflicted with pain in their bodies. Those who may be afflicted with the sorrow of wayward children and grandchildren. And wayward family members. Wayward loved ones. Lord, that you may bring comfort to all of us this morning. Lord, you are the God of all comfort, as the scripture says in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. The God of all comfort, who comforts us with the comfort with which we should be comforted, Lord, and with that we comfort one another. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our time of need. We ask you, Lord, to visit the faithful in here this morning and those who are watching online that you may bring comfort to them, that you may provide them that spiritual rest for their souls. And Lord, in every condition of life, whether we struggle or prosper, whether we suffer or rejoice, may we know that in your hands all these things are better work together for our good and for your eternal glory. And Father, as we turn to the preaching and proclamation of your word, as we look at the command to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Father, use me as I prayed earlier today to, to preach well to your glory, to do what is pleasing to you from this pulpit, to shepherd the flock of God well. To Lord, not preach my words, but to preach yours. And Lord, may you use your word to aim at our hearts, to sow your truth into our hearts that your truth may be absorbed into us by your spirit. Lord, give us new eyes. Give us renewed hearts. Give us renewed desires for you. Lift us up, Lord, by your word, by your truth as you reveal it to us this morning. May you be glorified. And Lord, we ask you to bind Satan right now. We ask you, Lord, to remove any distractions from our way so that our hearts may be good ground, that we may receive the word and understand it and bear fruit. Psalm 30-fold, Psalm 60-fold, and Psalm 100-fold. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.
Amen. Let us turn to Galatians, the fifth chapter, sixth chapter, rather. We're in our next to last sermon, as I said earlier in this book. And we're concerning ourselves this morning with the uh, overall topic, bearing one another's burdens. And uh, what we're looking at is the practical outworking of what we looked at last week about walking in the spirit and and how that looks and what Paul is going to show us here is one way how it looks one way to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh excuse me and I will say this that walking in the spirit does not lend us towards being selfish and self-centered believers but it leads us to look out for the care of other saints. And that is what we're going to see here this morning. So this is the word of the Lord. From Galatians 6. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness some translations say meekness considering yourself lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ for if anyone thinks he himself to be something when he is nothing he deceives himself but let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one should bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary, people, in doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart or if we do not faint. Therefore, having said this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a nice way to cap that passage off. So, what does a spirit-led community look like? That's the question that I want to lead with. I was I always try to lead out with the question. Sometimes I fail to do that, but when I was uh, looking at this passage and knowing what I was going to be preaching about, that's the first question that came to my mind on the heels of what we covered last Sunday about Uh, Walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. And Paul mentioned in that uh, fifth chapter that when we uh, he he listed the works of the flesh, you know, he said that there are many. And then he says those who practice such things would not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he said the fruit of the spirit is. And he says love, joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against us there is no law. 
So when we think about what a Christian community looks like, this passage before us this morning shows us. When we see people who are truly led by the spirit, what sorts of things do we see them doing? In this passage, we have a snapshot of a spirit led community. And uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul shows us how a spirit led church community uh, should look in action. And what do we see? So Paul captures, you look at here the passage, he captures uh, the action of a spirit-led community with a single phrase, burden-bearing. Burden-bearing. And he says it again in verse 2, bear each other's burdens, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the main point of this passage. A call to bear one another's burdens. And this is the main thing a spirit led community does is bear each other's burdens there should not exist in this church or any other church believers just toughing it out by themselves that's the antithesis of a Christian community and I'll say this about the word community there's only one true community and that's the Christian community. All other communities are false communities. You know, you, you hear about the quote LGBTQ community or the quote black community or any other type of community. Those are not true communities because if you have an opinion that's outside of the narrative of those communities, guess what? They don't want you in their community. That's not a community. That's, that's not the true meaning of one. But we have a community because we share a common inheritance, and that is eternal life. We share a common Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We share a common salvation, and that is salvation by grace through faith. There's no other way to be saved but uh, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that there is one God, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and in all and through us all. That's true community. So out of all communities that exist, the spirit-led community of the church should be the one where we can be comfortable sharing our burdens with and to. Not just toughing it out. And we're going to see how that works out. Now certainly burden bearing includes providing practical help to one another. But what Paul specifically has in mind here is bearing the burdens of one another's sin. That's what he has specifically in mind here. Because he says if anyone is uh, caught in a transgression. So the primary way we do this is through the practice of spiritual restoration. We are to restore believers who fall into sin. So for the Galatians, the priority should be not trying to obey the law and to get circumcised and try to uh, be the best uh, Jewish Gentile you can be, as the Judaizers were trying to do. But it should be helping other believers who are struggling with sin and other problems. We have to help each other who are struggling with sins. Help walk them through it. Pray with them through it. But regrettably, as, 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 as sinners... We 
can become too proud and too preoccupied with ourselves even to notice much less care about other believers in the body and their need for restoration. And another sin that we can commit as believers is we can isolate ourselves from other believers serving us. That itself is pride. That's a sin because that betrays what the Christian community is about. When we isolate ourselves. That's pride. That's saying I can handle this myself. I don't I don't need the body of believers uh, to 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 help shepherd me through this or help pray with me through this or help encourage me through it we we, we become inward focused and that betrays uh, not looking out for our own needs but also on the needs of others as Paul said in uh, the book of Philippians the second chapter it betrays that so we are not to be too proud or preoccupied with ourselves to notice the needs of other believers that's not how a spirit led community looks. So what Paul is doing here, because that, first of all, that's not God's ideal. That's not why God created us. God created us for community. We understand that some people are extroverts and introverts, which is actually, those are secular psychological terms, by the way. Uh, they really are. Uh, you know, some people are more shy, bashful. That's okay, but that's not what this means. Even if you're shy and bashful, that, that doesn't mean that you don't, share with others or that you don't attend to the needs of others you can't say well it's my personality to be selfish because that's basically what you're saying it's my personality to be self-centered God created us for community he created us to love and serve each other to encourage each other to pray for one another that's what he created us for as a church for a true community sharing in each other's needs if anyone needs prayer, pray for them. But no one can know what to pray for if you don't do what? Tell them. We're not mind readers. Now you can look at somebody and say, man, something's not, not right and, and come to them. And that's okay too. But at the same time, you can pull a brother or sister aside and say, hey, I need you to pray for me about something. And just do that. So Paul is showing us how this ideal of caring for one another should look in the body of believers. So the big idea is that there are two practical ways to walk by the Spirit. And those are our two principles this morning. The first way is to humbly help your brother in need. So let's look at verses uh, 1 and 2 again. I'm reading from the ESV here. It says, brothers or brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So this is specifically talking about someone who is caught in sin. You who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves lest you to be tempted. Excuse me. So under the principle of humbly helping your brother in need, the first thing is we ought to gently restore a brother who you find sinning or sister. Okay. So Paul's burden has been what we should call, I'm sorry for, for Paul's burden is that we should walk in the spirit. That's that's his burden. His burden is that we should keep in step with the spirit. That's uh, uh, Galatians 5 and 25 to walk in the spirit, to keep in step with the spirit. That is his burden. So in other words, that we should look to the spirit for guidance and strength 
and follow as he has as he directs us how to live. So in practice, we see that the first thing we do is he shows us how sin should be handled in the body of Christ. Now, when we see a brother or sister in sin in the body of Christ, how should we handle it? Paul lays it out. But he lays out it. He lays it out positively, not negatively. Negatively, we can handle someone's sin by telling someone else. Then it becomes gossip. And that gossip can turn to slander. It can easily happen. It happens a lot in churches. It happens a lot in the church. There's a saying that we we can be good at shooting our wounded. The church is bad about that. That doesn't mean the church itself is bad. It's the, the sinners that make up the church, the redeemed sinners that make up the church. That in our sin, we can uh, shoot the wounded. Those who have fallen into sin, instead of helping them, we condemn them. We gossip about them. And we slander them. We assassinate their character. We whisper around them. I'll say uh, by God's grace, not only by his grace, we haven't had that problem in our church in 12 years as a church. I, I don't think we've ever had that type of uh, problem. And I praise the Lord for that. That's only because of the Lord's grace. Uh, I know in some of our other churches, I've talked to other pastors about uh, having to deal uh, with that. Even when we've had some things going on uh, among the members of our body. We made sure that we tempt that out right away. Like, no, we're not going there. That's not biblical. That doesn't glorify God. But in a lot of churches, that has not happened. So Paul lays out here how we should respond, how sin should be handled. Now, the responsibility applies to all believers, not just to the leaders. It's not just the, 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 the pastor is not a sin detector. Okay. All of us, and we, none of us are like sin detectors, but it is not just the responsibility of the leader to help handle sin that's in the body. He says, brethren, brethren is a generalized, it's a patriarchal term, but it's a general term. So don't try to pass responsibility off to someone else. This is a family responsibility that requires the loving network of family relationships in the church because the church is a family. We're a family believer. We are brothers and sisters of the highest order, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We are a spiritual family. We are the most important family because we're going to share something together that no earthly family will share because every earthly family doesn't have redeemed people. But the family of Christ does. All of us are redeemed. So the responsibility is to all believers. The occasion is sin that is evident. He says that even if a man or a brother is caught in a sin. And again, it's not that we're spying on people to try to catch them. But it says if you know someone who is caught in a transgression, what are we to do? You who are spiritual. Now, what does he mean by that? Who are the spiritual? 
The spiritual are those, it goes back to the last chapter. Walk in the spirit, you should not fulfill the desires, the sinful desires of the flesh. So who are the spiritual? The spiritual do not mean the perfect, because none of us are. That means in that, in that case, none of us should address anyone's sin. The spiritual are those who are walking in the spirit, who are led by the spirit, who are controlled by the spirit, who are evidencing the fruit of the spirit. All of which would be needed for this interaction to be successful. Okay. Again, it's not about perfection. It's about uh, our, our, is our life patterned by being led by the spirit, being controlled by the spirit. It is the evidence of the fruit of the spirit visible in our lives. Now, if we find ourselves in a less desirable state. The answer is not to forget about your responsibility. To your brother or sister. If you find that you. Uh, are less in a less desirable state. You first address your own relationship issues with the Lord. Then. In a renewed spirit. You come alongside and help your brother. So in other words. It, it, it doesn't let anyone off the hook. <laughs> so oh, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not. And this is not like gradations of spirituality. You know within the. The church, the, the most anointed, you know, versus the least anointed. What it means is you know within yourself. And if you know that you're in, in some less desirable state as far as walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit, that don't mean that you just remain that way. You know what I mean? Because we as believers are progressively sanctified. We're, we're, we're pursuing holiness. We're pursuing a life of righteousness. We're pursuing a life of sanctification and being more like Christ so that's something that we endeavor to do anyway now we're going to be at different stages of spiritual growth all of us are but that doesn't mean that we don't pursue spiritual growth because we're not growing we don't just say okay well I can't deal with that because I'm not where I need to be with the Lord as people say well get where you need to be with the Lord <laughs> amen with the spirit's help because we have a job to do we have to do what? Restore our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that is the goal. So it says here. We who are spiritual. He says do what? Restore such a one. Notice he used the word restore. Restore in the uh, Greek deals with like the setting of a bone in place. You know, someone breaks their bone, take them to the doctor. The doctor's job is to do what? To set that bone back in place. That's what the, the Greek uh, rendering of this mean means. It says restore as opposed to rebuking them and unrighteously judging them critically. The mission of the Christian people is always restorative. The mission of the Christian is always restorative. Restore means, again, to straighten things out, to set a broken bone, to mend the nets. That's what we're called to do as believers. That's what walking in the spirit looks like. We're restoring. We're constantly restoring the saints back to health back to uh, a a fruitful walk 
with the Lord. You know, we talk about, um, you know, we had those pastor meetings that we used to have uh, with uh, Bob and Ryan and all of us called Iron, Iron on Iron. You know, the scripture in Proverbs says, Iron sharpens iron. One brother strengthens another. Iron sharps iron. And that's what we got to do as believers. We, we sharpen what? Each other. You can't sharpen by yourself. We restore each other. We're not about self-restoration as the world says. Well, you worship yourself and, you know, self-care is not necessarily a bad thing if you do it in a way that brings glory to God. But the world has turned that into a, a self-idolatry. You know, self-care is about loving yourself. It's almost like it's, 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 it's self-esteem times 10. That's what the world has turned self are we to care for ourselves? Yes. You know, hygiene, all those things. Take a little vacation or go out and walk in the woods or whatever and not get lost. Uh, or go for a drive somewhere. You know, let your uh, windows down, your sunroof back, and just let the wind blow through your hair or whatever. There's nothing wrong with doing those type of things. Pampering yourself, you know, going to a spa, getting a massage. It is nothing inherently sinful about those things. But when it turns to worship. You begin to worship yourself and idolize yourself and you want other people to worship and idolize you. Guess what? No, you, you think you can only, you're the only person who can restore yourself. I'm the only one who can fix me. That's what it leads to. And those people are never fixable because you can't fix yourself. You need a community of believers doing what? Pushing you, encouraging you, and you doing the same for them, not just absorbing all the attention. But you're doing the same thing in the body of believers. And as we as we restore each other, everyone is going to be restored. I always use it as a, I always use the illustration of a of a, a chain in a circle. Each link is linked to the other. And then once one link is broken, the whole circle falls apart. As believers, we all do what restore each other and everybody's being restored. We all encourage each other and everyone is being what encouraged if we're doing it with each other so as we restore each other everybody will be restored and so how does this restoration look the attitude in a spirit of gentleness is not only important what we say and do but how we say and do it what is our tone and attitude of restoration are we doing it with exasperation like <sighs> like really Again, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, we can't do it with exasperation. That's not, that's not gentleness. A person who needs restoration needs gentleness. They don't need exasperation like, I'm just tired of you. No, that's not how we restore each other. We, we shouldn't even think that way because, you know, we can sin in our thoughts too. I always remember that. You know, we, we, we can't even think that way. We, we, we do it. We restore each other with a spirit of what? Gentleness. And we do it with humility. Each one looking out, looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. Keep watch on yourself. So we do it with humility. 
because we ourselves can be uh, tempted. And then under this principle, we see that we lovingly bear the burdens of a brother. Now, this can be a sin burden, but also burdens in general. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We got two things that we're looking at. We're looking at the command of Christ and the example of Christ. So first, what is the command of Christ? Bear one another's burdens. That's the, that's the command of Christ. Warren Worsby said this, and I think this is so excellent. He was talking about the, uh, in his commentary on this verse, the legalist of his day or the legalist period. And this is so true of legalism. Warren Worsby says, the legalist is not interested in bearing burdens. Instead, he adds to the burdens of others. That's what the legalist does. And he references uh, Acts 15 and 10, which says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Excuse me. In the content context of that in Acts 15 was the Jerusalem council where the question was going to be uh, answered, uh, where um, they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So uh, they com they convened the Jerusalem council to answer that question. And what the apostles were saying is that you're putting a burden on believers by saying that. And that's what legalists do. They put burdens on you. you now, I talked about the, the, the churches that we came from putting burdens on women. You had to wear dresses. You can't wear makeup. You can't cut your hair. You you can't wear jewelry, you know, unless it's a wedding ring. You know, men, you can't wear facial hair and you, you know, you got to, you, you know, you can't wear bikinis to the beach and just, just can't go to the movies, you know, can't go to a restaurant with a, a, a bar in it. I mean, there's all these legalistic adding to the law, making a law where there is no law, burdens. And the Pharisees were doing the same thing in Jesus' day. Jesus said this in uh, Matthew 23 and 4 about the Pharisees, about them putting uh, heavy burdens on their uh, converts. And they made it harder for them to follow the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 4, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That's what legalists do. They put all these burdens on the Lord's people, but they don't lift them. They just put them on them. Worsby continues, the legalist is always harder on other people than he is on himself. But the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does of others, that he might be able to help others. Instead of trying to restore the erring brother, the legalist will condemn him and then use the brother to make himself look good. This is what the Pharisee did uh, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The legalist rejoices when a brother falls and often gives the matter wide publicity because then he can boast about his own goodness and how much better his group is than the group 
on which the fallen brother belongs. You know, some people try to lift themselves up by putting you down in the church, in the body of Christ, a, a, a brother or sister who falls into sin. And some people try to make themselves look better. And what that does, that puts an extra burden on the person who's fallen. Instead of lifting that burden, they, they put more of a burden on them. That is not how the body of Christ should look at all. So he's talking about bearing each other's burdens. If a Christian brother or sister is weighed down or menaced by some burden or some threat, we ought to be alert to that and quickly do something to help. Don't let them be crushed by that burden. Don't let them be destroyed. Don't increase the burdens. We as believers are to make burdens light for each other. What are we to do with our life as believers? We are to help other believers bear their burdens. And there will be more satisfaction to us than we realize when we come alongside another brother or sister in Christ and help them along to bear their burdens. It feels so much better when we do that. Do you know that selfish people are miserable people? They're very miserable because, first of all, they're living in rebellion against God. That's not how God made made you. God didn't make us to be selfish and self-centered. That's not what he made us for. What did he tell Adam? It is not good that what? Man should be alone. He gave him a suitable helper. And it wasn't an animal. It was a, it was a woman. <laughs> okay. Nothing wrong with having pets. But some people use pets as surrogates for their loneliness. No. God gave him a helpmate. Eve. The woman is the glory of the man. So he gave. He said man should not be alone. Here's a suitable helper for you. And it was Eve. It's not good for us to dwell in community alone. That's the, the greater narrative of that. As, as believers, being selfish and self-centered, that's a very miserable existence. Yeah, some people who live that way all their lives, they, they pursue things, they pursue careers that, that, that foster that selfish, self-centered attitude. And then when they get, we're seeing that now, I, I see it all the time with a lot of older celebrities with just uh, people who are getting to their 50s and 60s and they've lived all their lives to themselves and then they get older they're lonely for companionship because they wasted it they don't have children not talking about people who are infertile people who can't have children they, they, they choose rather to live a selfish self-centered life all about themselves all about advancing themselves and then when they get old they don't have any children. They don't have any grandchildren. They don't have true family. They don't belong to a church because they're not in Christ. They've rejected God. And now they get old and lonely and miserable. And all they have time to do is sit around and regret the choices they made and how they destroyed their lives by believing the lie. That they didn't need God. That God doesn't exist. As believers, we're not meant to live that way. 
we are meant to bear each other's burdens in the context of a what community of believers. Warren Worsby points out the uh, it seems like a contradiction between verses two and five because verse two says bear one another's burdens and then verse five says for each one will have to bear his own load and he points out this helpful um, explanation of that he says there's no contradiction between verses two and five because two different Greek words for burden are used in verse two it is a Greek word meaning a heavy burden while in verse five it describes a soldier's pack he says what we should help each other bear the heavy burdens of life but there are personal responsibilities that each man must bear for himself I give you a good illustration um, life itself can get hard and we need other people to come alongside us and help us through them right <laughs> if you have the burden of ruining your credit that's the burden that you have to bear on your own if you have the burden of um, having a child out of wedlock when you're a teenager of course you got your family there with you but that's like a personal no one can bear that burden with you they can help you through it but they can't bear the actual burden for you you have to bear that alone and the consequence of that alone but burdens of life that we have the, the everyday struggles of life we help bear those burdens for each other but there's some personal burdens that we have to bear on our own that we make for ourselves sometimes you know we can make a mess of our life and want someone to come help us clean it up right that's not fair to those people but there's some burdens that in the context of a Christian community guess what someone who's grieving that's a that's a life burden someone's grieving loss of, loss of a family member or uh, a brother or sister loses their job for unfair reasons or whatever you know we come alongside and, and help that family we've helped bear financial burdens uh, for people in our church you know we, we, we've been able to do that because that's what you do in the context of a community now if a person is financially irresponsible and does it that's a whole different story but we try to help bear the burdens in church among the church friends. I can't tell you how many people call my number. Hey, do y'all help with power bills? No. Call up on power. Call family services. I said we only help people who are members of our church. I don't say no like that. I'm just saying, you know, that's, that's what I'm thinking in my mind. But uh, I, I get a call at least once a month. Somebody's going on that website or Google churches that are near them the living church will pop up in the google search and they'll call the number which is my cell phone number and i get at least one call a month about that about someone asking help man we did that we wouldn't have any money as a church you know word 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 to get out in the streets hey yeah you could call that church man they'll they'll pay your power bill for you we won't have any i said no we we help those who are members of our church i, I, I don't even know who you are only know what you're saying is real we have somebody we've had plenty of people call trying to scam us I mean I'm not boo boo the fool I didn't fall the back of a turnip truck um, I may be dumb but I'm not stupid as my dad used to say you know no we 
bear burdens of who? Those who are members in the church and the member community of believers. That's how burden bearing looks within the context of Christian community. John Piper gives a helpful definition of a burden. He says we should probably define a burden then as anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith. It's a good way to put it. Whether a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and judgment. That's that's very helpful. Anything that can crush the joy of our faith can be considered a burden. Is there anything in your life that's crushing you that you need to bring to the body of believers? Or just one person in the body of believers? Or just beckoning the church, saints, I need, I need your prayers about this. If it's something that's soul crushing, bring it to the saints. Don't try to grind it out and bear it on your own because that's that's actually the sin of pride. And we bear each other's burdens fulfilling the law of Christ. Now what this means is you know we know that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So what we are saying is when, when, when Christ summons us to obey the law of love he offers himself we're fulfilling the law of Christ by fulfilling that law of love. We're slaying the dragon of pride, basically, as John Piper uh, likes to say. We're fulfilling the law of Christ. We're fulfilling the law of love. The law of Christ is the law of love. Love is self-sacrificial. Love gives of itself for the good of the other, for the good of the recipient. That's what love looks like. So when we bear each other's burdens, guess what? We're fulfilling the law of love to each other. We're demonstrating that we love the brethren. We love the community of believers. We love the brothers and sisters in Christ. When we bear each other's burdens. And then we humbly take responsibility for our own load. Verse uh, 3 says, First, we have to watch out for pride. If anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing, he does what? Deceives himself. That means we do it with pride. I mean, sorry, we do it with humility. We bear each other's burdens with humility. We don't bear them thinking that we're better than them. We don't do that. That's not how it looks. Because what does that mean we're doing? We're deceiving ourselves. But it says instead in verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Excuse me. So what Paul is doing here is rebuking conceit. And he tells us that it must be avoided. We are to compare our achievement not with the work of our neighbors, but with what our best work would have been. That's what that means, that each one examine his own work. When we're, when we're bearing burdens, we're not comparing ourselves to how other people bear burdens. We're comparing ourselves to our own work. Are we doing a good job? 
of bearing burdens? Are we doing a good job of being a burden bearer? Are we doing a good job at giving our, or sharing our burdens with other uh, believers? How does that look? We're comparing ourselves against that standard. And so when we do that, there will be no cause for conceit or pride or thinking of ourselves to be something that we're not. There will be no room for that. So it all goes back to humility. And Christ talks about this in Matthew 7, uh, 3 through 5. I'm going to read this for you uh, right quick. This is in the uh, Do Not Judge uh, passage that people seem to forget uh, forget that there are other verses besides Matthew 7 and 1 where they say do not judge they don't read the rest of the context here so this is what Jesus says and I'll start from the first verse just to get the context of verses 3 through 5 Jesus says judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or why do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in the context of what we're seeing here in Galatians is that we have no room to boast. We have no need to boast about the burdens that other believers have because we have them ourselves. So we have to examine our own work. We have to examine our own burden bearing capabilities. We have to discern our own heart to see whether we're being uh, selfish and self-centered or not. Before we can do what? Help other believers, we have to examine ourselves. And it takes great humility to do that. Because you got some people who are professional fixers. They like fixing other people. Right? When they're in shambles. You know, it's the, like the old, uh, one of those old gospel songs, sweep around your own front door before you try to sweep around mine. <laughs> take out your own trash first before you try to take mine out. Our next principle is we are to consistently keep on giving to meet the needs of others. So again, we're talking about practical ways to uh, walk by the spirit. The first one was humbly help your brother need. This one is consistently keep on giving to meet the needs of others. He says in verse six, if anyone is taught the word, anyone rather who is taught the word must share all things with the one who teaches so Paul is basically instructing the church to support the teachers uh, materially with uh, food money and whatever good things are appropriate that's what he's uh, saying there so um, mutually uh, sharing so that's the context of also bearing burdens that the church should help bear the burdens of, of those who, who teach and, and labor in the word that's what the church is uh, tasked with also that's what all believers uh, to do are to do but the question is always whether or not this passage is talking about material and financial uh, support. It's talking about for those who are ministering the word of God. Um, it's making sure that a person is not just a taker, 
but a giver as they have opportunity. I was talking about talking this about my wife this morning about uh, people we know who are consumers, but they're not givers. They they take take take, but they don't give. They just use and consume, but they don't add to. You have people like that. That's that's their life. They they like to use. They like to consume. They're consumers, but they're not producers. They take, but they don't give. Uh, they always have their hand out, but they don't extend a hand. In the body of Christ, that should never be the case when it comes to um, taking care of uh, those who, who teach and labor uh, in, in the word and, and, and teaching the saints. So he is, he is saying this in the context of uh, being, uh, you know, walking in the spirit. Those who walk in the spirit, they're not, they're not just consumers. They're not just concerned with taking their concern also with what? With giving. So who's going to buy my groceries for me at the church? <laughs> who's going to go to Sam's with me? Uh, kidding. Warren Worsby says that uh, we must realize the spiritual principle that lies behind this precept. He says God does not command believers to simply give that pastors and teachers and missionaries might have their material needs net met, but that the givers might get a greater blessing from doing that. And that ties into verses 7 and 8 about uh, sowing and reaping. So he says here, let the one who is taught the word share good things with him who teaches. And then he says, do not be deceived. So he's going to expand on this principle and uh, what it means. So he says, you have the validity of the principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So that means that this principle is true. This principle is true that the Lord has given. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And we all know this. We can say this blindfolded, right? Whatever man sows, he will reap. You know how people say, you reap what you sow. Some people say that in a vengeful way. Like, you're going to get what's coming to you, right? And I'll say this also. This principle is not karma. I have to say that. Because you have a lot of people who say karma or instant karma. You know, you do, you, you know, you, whatever you put out, that's what you're going to get back. You know, whatever you put out in the universe, the universe is going to give it back to you. That's, that, that's karma, that's pantheism, that's uh, Eastern uh, religious mysticism. And people don't even really know how karma works. In order to believe in karma, you have to believe in reincarnation because they're tied together. Uh, that, that's, that's classic Hinduism. And the way reincarnation works is if you have bad karma when you die, you have to reincarnate so that you go back into that cycle of karma again until you get good karma. So if you die with, quote, bad karma, you have to, you have to be reincarnated in order to have try to get good karma you know if your good deeds outweigh your bad or whatever the case may be you know that's that's in essence excuse me dumbing it down but that's basically what they're saying but karma is not the same as reaping and sowing 
always remember that don't don't uh don't don't think that there's a such thing as uh karma because it's not the basic principle here is uh reaping and sowing because this this can be used of course it's a farming term it's an agricultural term the more you sow in the field the more you will reap the greater your harvest would be that's that's a, a agrarian uh, principle but it also uh appeals to believers in the common fellowship with one another where you share things together so Paul is talking about mutuality, not just one party serving or providing for the other, but both parties sharing together. That's what he's talking about. So uh, sowing and reaping replies, applies rather to everyone. Not, it's just not one-sided. So the validity is don't be deceived. The statement is what a man sows, that will he also reap. Now in that, we see two contrasting applications of this principle. The first one says what? The one who sows to his own flesh shall of the flesh reap what? Corruption. That goes back to what we read in chapter 5, the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh reap corruption of your, of your soul and corrupt your flesh even more. The more you sow to the flesh, the more you sow to the works of the flesh, the more corrupt you're going to become. You look at those works of the flesh again. Verse 19, chapter 5. The works of the flesh evidence, sexual morality. The more sexually immoral you are, the more immoral you're going to become. The more immorality you're going to be involved in. Those who are involved in, in consistent sexual immorality, where there's homosexuality, um, all types of sexual perversion, uh, fornication, you know, having sex before and outside of marriage, adultery. The more you participate in that, guess what? You're going to become more corrupt. That's what this principle means. You sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. You're going to have a corrupt spirit. You're going to have a corrupt mind. You're going to have a dirty mind. You're going to think dirty and evil thoughts all the time they're going to just dominate you the, the, the more you you work out anger the more angry you're all the time guess what it, it's going to corrupt you and you'll start getting angry at the drop of a hat before you know it like every every little word uh as they say triggers you idolatry the the the, the more you participate in idolatry the more idolatrous you're going to become and then you're going to just be worshiping in and everything next thing you know you'll be out there hugging a tree somewhere in the forest because that's it, it just descends into more and more corruption. You're going to think that there's energy in mountains and trees. You're going to become a pantheist. But that's what happens when you sow what? To the flesh. When you, when you sow to that idolatry. Sorcery. Same thing. You start believing in crystals and, and amulets and talismans and and lucky charms and rabbit's foots and and all that stuff the next thing you know you're getting into into uh being a, a, a wiccan and and into witchcraft and the next thing you know you're gonna start wearing all black and having black nails and and have a bunch of black cats in your house and, and you know it, it just it's just the sins it gets worse and worse I, I know people like this who've just descended into madness because that they're sowing to what? The flesh. They're sowing to those sinful desires and they just get worse and worse and become more and more 
corrupt because always remember this people sin never relents it never does sin doesn't let up the devil is not going to take his foot off the paddle and say okay I, I've done enough no he's not the, uh, First Peter 5 says he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what devour devour means to destroy to annihilate and those who are sowing to the flesh that is the that is the end goal for their enemy the end goal is annihilation and that can come through all types of ways just but uh, God gives them over to those desires to their destruction so that's the negative example of this principle the positive example is those who sow to the spirit shall from the spirit reap what eternal life that means eternal life in this life and the life to come we're going to reap the blessings that God has for us and it's going to be evident in our life we're going to live out those nine fruit of the spirit that love that joy that patience that peace that kindness that goodness that faithfulness that that gentleness that that self-control we're going to reap more of that and it's going to be evident and we our lives are going to be blessings to others we're going to be that city on the hill that Jesus said that cannot be hidden. We're going to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Why? Because we are sowing to the spirit. We are walking in the spirit. Don't forget this basic principle, people. Like begets like. Righteousness produces more what? Righteousness. Always remember that. Like begets like. Righteousness begets righteousness. Holiness begets more holiness. But sin begets more sin. And the second principle of this sowing and reaping is that the more one sows, the more one reaps. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9 and 6 in the context of, of giving. He says, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. That's 2 Corinthians 9 and 6 for those uh, taking notes. And then also, the third part of this principle of sowing and reaping is that one reaps more than what he sows. One seed can produce many fruits. Hosea in Hosea 8 and 7 said that the one who has sown the wind shall reap the whirlwind. He was saying that in the context of sin. The effects of sin are greater than the sin itself. Think about, again, back to the negative part of that principle. The one who sows to his own flesh shall uh, of the flesh reap corruption. The effects of sin are greater than the sin itself. The lie that we believe as sinners is that ah, little little sins don't have great effect. They affect our souls. Because what we think in our sinful minds is that, okay, this little sin doesn't mean anything. I can do something a little bit bigger, so to speak. That's that's what our sin nature tells us, right? It, uh, that's, that's not a, that's just a little lie. 
Little lies, Spurgeon said, always lead to big lies. So, also one seed of righteousness can produce more righteous fruit. So that's why we sow to the spirit. We walk in the spirit. We walk by the spirit. We live that out in the Christian community. And then lastly, here he gives the need for uh, perseverance, verses 9 and 10. I, I love these two verses right here. So, let us not go weary in what? Doing good. What's the doing good? What's the context? Bearing burdens, restoring each other who are in sin. That's the doing good, the context, and the general doing good to one another. Sowing according uh, to the Spirit is also uh, uh, in this purview. So let us not grow weary in doing well or doing good. Why, people? For in due season, we will do what? Reap if we do not lose heart, do not faint, do not give up. Don't grow weary in doing good in the Christian community. Don't, do, don't grow weary in serving the Lord. We don't know when your due season is, despite what the prosperity preachers say. This is your due season. They said it like two or three times a year. And those people still waiting for that due season. The due season is according to who? God. But the point is, despite when it comes, you still don't grow weary in doing well and doing good. Because you know that you serve a God who is one day going to do what? reward you whether in this life but especially if not in this life the life to come Paul lays out this principle in uh, Colossians 3 when he talks about the uh, slave and uh, master uh, context and I always use it in the context of work this is one of those prayers that uh, I've encouraged the church in the past uh, to pray about when we work we work as to the Lord and not unto to man Colossians 3.23 says whatever you do work hardly as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart believer so don't grow weary in bearing burdens don't grow weary in restoring uh, uh, believers who are in sin don't grow weary in walking according to the spirit And then verse 10, he gives the application of this. To do good whenever we can and to whoever we can. So then, having said this, that's what that means. As we have opportunity, as we await our rewards. As we have opportunity, which we will have. Let us do good to everyone. In general, common grace, we do good to everyone. But especially, and especially, to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is a scandalous statement that Paul says. Now, we do good to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. Why is it scandalous? Because the Christian's primary allegiance is to the kingdom of of God 
our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom. That's who our primary allegiance is to the saints, the things that pertain to the church. Rather than friends, the workplace, school, sports, or to anything else, and even earthly families. It doesn't mean that we don't care about our earthly families. That mean that. But our primary allegiance is to who? The church. Why? Because we share something. I don't share the same future with the church that I have with all my family members. Because our family members are not in Christ. I want them to be in Christ. I pray for them to be in Christ. I minister Christ to them. But we don't share the same destination. We don't. I hate it. I don't like it. It grieves my heart. But we don't share the same destination. We don't have the same inheritance. We're all not co-heirs with Christ. We're physical heirs with each other in this earthly life. But when God calls us home, some of them are not going with me. So when we think about it in the context of believers, we share a common inheritance with each other. And because of that, our first priority should be to who? The household of faith, the saints. My care for you all as believers exceeds my care for my family. It'll mean that I don't love my family because Jesus even said, if a man does love his mother or father more than me, he is not worthy of me. He didn't mean that you hate your mother or father. He means that your love for him should be so great that it looks like hate to your family because Christ deserves primary allegiance. The man came to Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, but let me first <laughs> go bury. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. That doesn't mean he shouldn't care about burying his family members, but the principle of it was, your allegiance is to me. I'm worthy alone of your worship. And then you worship me, I'll show you how to rightly orient your affections toward everyone else. Christ orients our affections toward the saints. I've been, by God's grace, I've been a believer. It'll be 32 years this year in May, only by God's grace. And I love the saints. I love the church of God. I love other believers. Uh, I, I do. It just, in my heart, I love the saints of God. I pray for the saints all the time. Even saints of churches that I used to go to, I see them, I give them a hug. Glad to see you. Love you. That's how the boys doing always, how friends doing whatever. I love the church of God. There's nothing on this earth like it, people. There's no other family that's better and higher and of more priority than the household of faith. So of all people, we should treat and do good to. We do it to everyone else, but especially we should have a special love, a special do-goodness to the household of faith. Amen. Uh, I'm, I, I want to read this devotional right quick as I, I want to end with this. I was reading this to Fran this morning. It's called Pray For Me and Pray For You. I read something from it last week from this uh, book, Gospel Meditation for Prayer. It talks about James 5, 13 through 20. Um, 
where James encourages the church to pray for each other. The writer says, life is messy, especially life alongside other people. It's even messy in the church. In the letter that bears his name, James corrects fellow Christians for hypocrisy, including significant interpersonal issues, favoritism in the church, the abuse of money, discord between the haves and have-nots, gossip, complaining and competing. So how does James culminate this book that keeps warning against selfishness and disunity with a rather abrupt call to prayer and fellowship? James commands a church culture that encourages transparency so that we can support one another in corporate prayer. He urges share for prayer. Number one, share your afflictions with the church family so that they can pray with you. That's verse 5 uh, and 13 where James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Christians suffer sometimes as a result of their faithfulness. Although our natural tendency is to respond to hardship with complaining, discouragement, or resignation, James points us to Christ. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let adversities chase you to Christ in prayer, not from him in bitterness. And in light of the verses that follow, run to him with other believers. Number two, share your joys with your church family so they can, they can pray with you. If we respond to affliction with prayer, how shall we respond to blessings? With prayer. Perhaps song. In both circumstances, the right response when life happens is prayer, whether a prayer of petition or a prayer of praise. And again, based on the context of the verse, it makes sense to make this a public praise, singing in harmony. Both blessings and sorrows are made to be shared. It has been well said that shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is half sorrow. That's what Charles, Charles Spurgeon said. Number three. Share your illnesses with your church family so that they can pray with you. Of course, I'm not urging you to share your germs. <laughs> Don't infect people. Just inform them. James commands us to let each other know when we're sick and especially let our spiritual leaders know. Don't wait for your pastor to call you secretly punishing him if he does it. James tells you to call him. We don't just pray. We pray together. Prayer is the corporate exercise. Contrary to the stiffer upper lip mindset of many, Sometimes the most spiritual thing to do is to request help. Get your church praying with you. Perhaps the Lord will be pleased to bring healing for his glory. If not, your church family will be ready to help you suffer well. Number five, number four, rather. Share your sins with your church family so that they can pray with you. We just talked about that today. Uh, this is where people start getting nervous. However, James tells us that transparency with the right Christian friends isn't dangerous. It's safe. Vulnerability of your friends reduces the vulnerability with your enemies. Sometimes the best way to fight sin is to drag it out of the dark and ask fellow believers for help. Welcome the accountability and prayer support of faithful friends. If you're not in a good church, I'm oh, sorry, if you're in a good church, they'll pray for you, not condemn you. And that will happen at this church. We don't condemn people. The prayers of trusted friends may keep you from sinning and may help reclaim when you proclaim you reclaim you rather when you do James calls us to deep fellowship to vulnerability to relationships to prayer Mark Miller a dear friend and fellow elder for many years has captured the idea this way pray for me pray for you these six words have become a motto at both of our churches that I pastored shortened with a text crazed age PFM PFY hmm, put that out there and see what happens uh, God intended for us to care for each other, pray for each other, rejoice with each other, weep with each other, and restore each other. Whether you're afflicted and happy, sick, 
or sinful, prayer is always the right answer, especially prayer with fellow believers. PFM, PFY. And then he ends it with this prayer. Thank you, Lord, for blessing, for rather the blessing of the local church. How kind you are to give us brothers and sisters with whom we can share our lives. Helping one another, praying for one another, and praising you with one another. May my church and may our church be a loving, sharing, burden-bearing family for your glory and our good. Amen. With that being said, let us pray as we close. And I pray this very prayer I just prayed. Lord, thank you for the blessing of the local church. How kind you are to give us brothers and sisters with whom we share our lives. Lord, how kind you are to give us your spirit who enables us and empowers us to live by your word. Lord, by your spirit, help us to help one another, to pray for one another, and praising you with one another. Lord, may the living church be a loving, sharing, burden-bearing family for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.